0: Your yeah, art was the prettiest art
1: All the art Thank you. Being a collector has changed a lot, hasn't it?:
0: Of course it's changed a great deal. There's one young scholar that says that Alfred single-handedly changed the taste in our time. But at that time, things were not very much esteemed.
1: But there were very few art books available.
0: There was very few art books available, and there were, above all, very few books with color reproductions, very few books with good color reproductions. The Van Gogh Show was an unbelievable affair. People came in droves, even stood in line to see it. Mrs. Roosevelt went twice to see it. And then we had to go back the next year in 1935, you see, to try and prolong the show.
1: Looking back, what do you think it was that appealed to the public in that exhibition? Was it the work and the quality of the man? The whole
0: Since that time, Van Gogh has become, oh, one of the most excessively popular painters, you know, that uncultivated people deeply admire. But at the time, there were both cultivated people who admired it and the uncultivated people who admired it. I mean, there was an intellectual aspect to the exhibition and nevertheless also an appeal to everyday people
1: in it. I've seen photographs of the lines and the busloads of people and all the things that that show sort of entailed or that happened. Well,
0: the fact that the paintings were so colorful and the fact that they were so intense and passionate and also that that there were, as usual when Alfred did shows at the time, these were wall labels with descriptions by Van Gogh of what he wrote about the pictures to his brother. I mean, Alfred Kelfrey underlined all the letters that poor Van Gogh had written to his brother, trying to explain to him what he felt about the night cafe and what he felt about the billiard room, what he felt about all these things. So there was a schmaltzy aspect, you know. I mean, you saw on the one hand these ferociously intense colorful pictures, and then you also saw what the painter was trying to put into them. I mean, it was all written so that people took the time. If people took the time to read the labels, they saw in a very intense way what the artist was trying to do. And seeing that is acting, my friends. Hold mm-hmm. your applause. And welcome, campers to Magic Camp. This is a podcast about art and power for anyone who has a little extra time after school. Welcome, welcome. Uh, I'm Banderson. With me is my Paul brother. Anderson. Yep, not Theo. Paul Anderson. Mm-hmm. Nor Vincent. Uh, and we are talking about poor Vincent Van Gogh. Um oh, Poor Vincent. <laughs> poor Vincent. <laughs> Van Gogh. Indeed, uh, he was very poor. Um, And uh, yeah, one of both of Paul and I's favorite artists and many, 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 many people in the world, whether cultivated or uncultivated, would say the same. Um, Paul, you like Van Gogh, yes?
1: I do. I love him. Uh, Unironically, uh, I have a a huge boner for Vincent Van Gogh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, as do i as do i um uh oh looking for my notes so yeah we're talking about van gogh he he let's get through the wikipedia he's a dutch painter who lived from 1853 to 1890 so paul a hundred years before you and i were born think about that
1: wow pretty interesting whoa dude
0: that's crazy Uh He's called a post-impressionist, which means he's so good that people didn't know what to call him, uh, and painted something like 3,000 works, a third of which were paintings, and the other two-thirds were drawings. I personally love his drawings so much. I think a lot of what his painting is comes from his drawings and from his work ethic, people. This is about work ethic. Um, But no, so much of what, what he did formally came from the fact that he was going over and over and over and over and over and over again um at these works from drawings up mm-hmm. to paintings and i think a lot of his style developed out of that although today we're not going to talk as much about the style or the formal qualities i don't think um we're going to talk a little more about his biography so paul d do, do you know about vincent van gogh's biography
1: i know the the basics uh, along with a few key details um mm-hmm. But maybe you could illuminate uh those things, and then we'll fill in the gaps and see if there's anything that I know um as there obviously will be
0: mm-hmm well, he cut off his ear and he gave it to a prostitute um really think he that, cut off his ear he cut off his ear why, and then he got one of those trumpets you know the sh- the the horn things that go yeah that go on the ear yeah um, uh well, that's a good question. Um, but yeah, so people know that. People might know that he came... Well, let's move backwards. That he committed suicide, right? People pretty much know that at age 37. That Or did he? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm or was he killed by the state? Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, it's pretty useful to go... Because people generally know... In reverse priority order, the uh, events of his life, suicide to his time in uh, psychiatric wards at Saint Remy to painting in the hillsides at Arles um, and painting in pubs and kind of among the rabble and and then maybe a little earlier in his career in Paris and attempting to be a serious artist and to go kind of the normal route through school or to get accepted. In academy galleries and things like that, um, but before he was in art, Paul, would you like to to share what he was doing before that?
1: Yeah, he was a he was a preacher man. Uh, I don't think he was the son of a preacher man, but he was uh, from a from a family of hyper religious people, um, as m- most families were in in those days. As a Dutch Calvinist, and tried to pursue a life of uh, ministry. But was, you know, I think he spent something like 10 years trying to have a go at it in the church. And I'm not sure if he completed any formal ministry training. Ben, do you know? I don't know. But he was basically kicked out because he didn't have that soft minister's touch, um, among other reasons. I think it was probably pretty clear that he wasn't exactly the most emotionally stable fellow. Um, which you can't have when you're trying to lead your flock to to the, the cool springs that are uh, faith.
0: Mm-hmm. And you know what? I bet he had bad teeth. That's no good yeah. if you're trying to be a
1: preacher man. No, 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 no. Mm.
0: It's too bad. I can sympathize. If you've ever pictured yourself in front of a crowd dazzling and uh, people looking up to you and following you, and then finding out you just don't got it, uh, Vincent knows how you feel. And so do Mm -hmm. I, it's a real bummer. Um, yeah. So I I think Vincent van Gogh, unlike any other artist, I can't, I can't even really think of any who would compare maybe Jackson Pollock to some extent, um, are as well known in terms of their biography, Mm -hmm. uh, it'd be interesting to count out the number of books and the number of movies, especially about Van Gogh.
1: Right. Uh, Maybe Picasso.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a, yeah, there's, there's so much Van Gogh content out there. Uh, you could, you could start a, start a whole, you know, branded page just with different Van Gogh content. Um, yeah, he's a celeb.
0: Mm hmm. What, what Van Gogh movies have you seen?
1: I've seen Loving Vincent. Um, we'll call that a you know Rent It if you must. <laughs> uh, not that the not that the artwork isn't really impressive, and the project itself really cool. Which is that they you know every frame was itself an oil painting. Um, the movie itself is not not very good.
0: What did they call um, it again? Rotoscoping or something.
1: Something like that. Um, I, I I think, think it's that really might be it. yeah funny that they have that word when the it's, the it's word an, is
0: tracing. That's the word you're looking for,
1: right? And it and it's an ex, insane amount of labor. Like when you watch the movie, it's almost like oh, I don't know if this was worth it. Um, Stupid, <laughs> because it's it's just like a kind of a hard to look at cartoon. You know, mm-hmm. it's like uh, this is really hard to focus. I don't know where to direct my eyes like and you the the beauty of it is just not it doesn't really strike you um i've also seen at eternity's gate which i thought was excellent yeah um starring our our boy uh willem dafoe Dafoe. um yeah yeah, very very good highly highly recommend 10 out of 10 yeah not 10 out of 10 but very good
0: yeah and 10 out of 10 for willem dafoe i mean he's the perfect for sure Van Gogh. It's his
1: best role since since Klaus in Life Aquatic.
0: Yeah, or um, the uh, goblin guy from Spider-Man. For sure. Um, he's got the severe face that you need. Uh, unlike there was like a BBC kind of long bio, like a documentary sort of thing, actually really focused on Van Gogh's writings and Benedict Cumberbatch <laughs> played Van Gogh just look yes. up a picture it's absurd he has like this he has red pubes like just taped to his face it looks awful and yeah. he he just like recites letters um esoterically or like very flufluously and mm. actually i would say that above all is a really great representation of uh what i think is maybe something to be frustrated about in modern day depictions of Van Gogh is um, the way he's uh, portrayed in that as very flowerly flowery. But um, okay, so yeah, that and the fact that he was a prolific writer, I think pretty much covers what a lot of people know about Van Gogh, which is quite a lot. I mean, that's a lot to know about any artist. Um, For sure. Like I said, probably number one number one with a bullet um but that he was very close with his brother Theo and a lot of what we know about Van Gogh comes from their letters and they were super close um Theo was also kind of a struggling slash failed artist but he was much more established and did some art dealing um he got People married say that- People
1: say that everybody in our generation tries to be an artist, but (laughs) no. The history suggests that it was much more common for people to just say, "Hey, you know what? I think I'm going to be an artist. Yeah, I'm going to paint. I'm going to do oil paintings for a living."
0: Yeah, if you look back at like uh, great militaristic movements, like the Italian fascists, right? Mm -hmm. And then look down the list of the top fascists, like half of them were poets. Poets were so commonplace and so respected and powerful Mm a hundred years ago.
1: And so easily radicalized.
0: Yes. Yes. Um, So yeah, I I would say that that's pretty much common knowledge and I want to get into what that says about Van Gogh and what we might consider, but let me drop some bombs on you uh, campers, things you don't know about Van Gogh. Um, Van Gogh, if you were out to breakfast with him would chew with his mouth hanging wide open. It was disgusting. And you could see all the pancakes in there and he would just like talk and talk and talk. And he was a pathological liar, a close talker. Um, you think Michael Vick is bad? Holy shit. Like you would not believe the things that Van Gogh did to young puppies. Um, People don't know this, but you, Paul, next time you're in the presence of a Van Gogh, like when the security guard's not looking up, looking at you, tilt it up and look on the back. He he wrote on the back of all of his landscapes, had to grind for this view. Can you believe that?
1: Amazing. Amazing. I'm,
0: I don't want to upset you, but he was a Big Bang Theory fan. Um, <laughs> and no, you, you've seen his famous paintings of the postman you know the portraits uh-huh. of the postman in several versions of those uh postman is wearing a maga hat oh,
1: god damn it
0: Yep. um let's see what else <laughs> when
1: your hero falls man what do you do
0: Yep. i have some more i'll go back to them um just kidding y'all that was a social experiment i wanted to oh. see what would happen if I told you some very nasty things about Van Gogh, would it change your perception of him? The reason I bring that up, um, what Paul and I opened with was an interview with Margaret Barr. Margaret Barr is the is long dead. Um, she was the wife of Alfred Barr, and Alfred Barr was the first director of MoMA. And if you're a returning camper, we talked about Alfred Barr really quickly in passing, as someone who was around at MoMA at the time of uh, the New York school and the abstract expressionists and was really putting his foot on the gas, um, to boost this movement and to buy up a lot of abstract expressionisms in the museum and to basically push the museum in a modernist direction. Um, and someone who was kind of portrayed as a visionary and behind the scenes and making this happen. Um, I think I kind of put a question mark over him at that time because, uh, As we know, the CIA was involved with MoMA at that time. And of course, MoMA being founded by the wife of uh, John D. Rockefeller uh, is highly suspect and has long associations with the CIA. And so the question was like, well, what was Alfred Barr's stake in all of this and in whose interests were he representing? And so when we came back to Van Gogh, I wanted to take a closer look at Alfred Barr because he's somewhat credited with being the guy who really launched Van Gogh into his um, contemporary popularity in America. And that was largely through a blockbuster show that he organized at MoMA in 1935. Um, And so I got a couple really interesting things. One of those was the interview, sort of an oral history with his wife after Alfred Barr had died that we read from. And that's kind of interesting Paul, did anything stick out to you in in the little snippet that we read?
1: I mean, there's just the general, you know, the excitement, the exuberance about having found an artist who can attract both the unwashed masses and the uh the cultural elite and kind of the the obvious, the obvious pleasure that she was getting out of the idea of seeing a bunch of rubes come to the art museum and what that then meant about Um, their their kind of cultural power therein.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so basically the interview is a little bit about her and her background is interesting, but mostly about Alfred and his whole career uh, is really illustrated by that show because according to him and according to her, it really was his life mission to make art accessible to the masses as well as create a lasting institution in moma that would be on the cutting edge of art and blah 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 and it's full of kind of like the funny little things of an old person coming out of an elite society as they look back on their lives and you know try and try to give it as good of a gloss as possible um she's like throughout the interview she keeps bringing up the fact that when they were in europe on assignments they didn't get a stipend and other people in from the museum were getting a huge stipend. Um, Mm. And I found that pretty common uh, in old people to who, you know, are, are well off to really dwell on a period of one year in their twenties when they kind of struggled, you know, right to Mm -hmm. justify everything that came later. Um, And then also like really bitterly hanging on to times they'd been slighted. So Alfred Barr was, um, he was the founding director, but he was, basically kind of uh, pushed out in 43. I can't remember by who he was still with the museum for a long time after that, but not as director and not in um, as leading of a role. So she brings up that quite a bit about that kind of coup against him. But um, I was, like I said, went into it with quite a bit of suspicion of, first of all, like it was Alfred Barr CIA (laughs) or OSS. And like, what was his interest in modern art? And was he, uh, was he working at the behest of somebody else? And I have to say, um, I think he's a pretty genuine actor. He was, he was teaching art for a long time and seems to be just a very eccentric and genuine guy and, um, extremely interested in the unfoldings of art at the time. Um, and I won't kind of go into his career, but just looking at the Van Gogh show, what he did with that was pretty incredible. Um, first of all, in gathering all these works. So they had 66 oil paintings and 50 drawings from Van Gogh. And none of this was available in the States. Like all of his stuff was in Europe um, and relatively no unknown in the United States and definitely unseen. Cause like she mentioned, there weren't many textbooks. There definitely weren't many photos and there certainly weren't color photos. Um, and so at the time, people, even if they were appreciators of art, may have heard of Van Gogh, but it would be really rare to have seen a Van Gogh. So a lot of his talent was in his charm, I guess, of going out to the Netherlands and other places and and schmoozing and convincing people who held Van Gogh's to loan them to him to go show in New York. Um, so it was a pretty massive undertaking and, and really impressive and I I gather that I guess things have changed quite a bit since then but what he was doing was pretty bold and innovative just going up and saying can we have this painting you know for six months um but not only that this is what I really want to bring up so just the availability of these paintings brought like masses to come see them and introduce Van Gogh to the Americans um but what I have a book here from a distant library that basically is a catalog of that show Um, with reproductions of all the works they showed and then um, all the like she mentions in that snippet all of the text that they displayed next to each painting and they like made a lot of innovations about how to display the artwork rather than uh, I can't remember skied or skied or something view like in the picture if you've seen uh, paintings or something of like an academic gallery where they just go all the way up the wall you know um Mm -hmm you know, they put them all eye level on a, a horizontal display and then with a snippet next to it. And all of those were really meticul- meticulously curated, um, with letters and things like that. So like she says, if this is, um, if this is a, a painting of whatever bar, like she, it would be cross-referenced with writings from Vincent to Theo about what he's trying to do with that painting. Um, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And along with like a, a long introduction that brings up the biography, the sequence of events, and sort of the personality that we just related and that we all know of Vincent Van Gogh. Um, so I mean, just looking at this book, like it's kind of an unbelievable amount of work. That alone I, it makes me pretty sympathetic to the guy of like how how much this was a labor of love. And all the descriptions are of him are basically as, a, like, a gaunt and
1: overworked crazy person. Um, Given our past discussions about MoMA, i got to say I'm kind of surprised. And I was kind of... Me too. I, uh, you know, maybe jumped the gun on assuming that the, the uh, first introduction of Van Gogh to the American public was something that was done in good faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway... Yeah.
0: And I think because of the time it was 35, I think this group of um, the picture I think we're trying to paint with the Pollock episode is imagine yourself graduating from Yale and you're in your skull and bones secret society and you're you're posing for a picture with your other 50 uh, alumni, whatever. Half the people in the room are going to go work for the CIA. Half of them or a quarter of them are going to go work on wall street. A quarter of them are going to go work in oil and gas, blah, blah, blah. And 10% are going to go work in art, things like this. It's an incredibly small circle of people. Um, all of whom are extremely highbred um, and have very nasty ties and interests. Um, And half of them by the end of the century are basically war criminals. Um, So that's like, that is the reality of the like milieu we're talking about. But I think in 1935, it's sort of before this transition to post-war America, where all of a sudden uh, they find themselves as the captains of empire Um, And also for MoMA, it was still really a fledgling operation. I guess John D. Rockefeller was not, really didn't like the project, really didn't like modern art. So it was something that was kind of going on um, without his interest or blessing. And so I think really, maybe in these first 10 years, there was a window of, um, you know, well-off and well-connected people, but... Who were genuine about this stuff, kind of running this this by the bootstraps. We'll do a whole episode, I think, on MoMA at some point. But um, yeah, I, I, I agree. I was surprised too. But what I wanted to get at with that is like, I, this is exact. If I were to go to a Van Gogh show, this is exactly how I would hope that it were set up, mm-hmm. because I do really love. His writings and how he related to Theo, um, and as, and the way he was so self-conscious about his work, um, and how you could tell, how, like how intentional everything he was doing was because of how he could explain and articulate it to Theo, right, or, or whoever.
1: And that maybe is a good place to linger for a second, um, and, and something I wanted to make sure that we point out about Van Gogh which is that he was very much aware of what he was doing mm-hmm. as an artist and was an incredibly thoughtful uh, artistically engaged person and there may be a temptation depending on you know what version of his life and his work that you've heard to think that he was just this kind of like mad genius who just kind of encountered a new form entirely by accident without any sort of awareness of you know what was going on in art and any yeah, of the no. any of the precedents. When the opposite is really true, it was that he was fairly obsessive about about his relation to the the impressionists that came before him and and you know the other artists working in in the world around him.
0: Right, and like the impressionists were also very extremely, you know, almost insufferably so, insufferably so self conscious about right. what they were doing and wrote treatises about their work, about color theory and vision and things like that. And Van Gogh, Van Gogh read all of that. Um, and I don't know if like, we know well enough his evolution of that, that self-consciousness where he was trying to be um, just a good realist painter or then just a good impressionist painter. But I will say um, I do really get the impression from his early stuff of that he was trying to truly work towards being a great painter in terms of like technically and fundamentally um and his early stuff is pretty you know bad in a lot of regards it, it in, if you're judging it by realist terms or impressionist terms academic or impressionist terms um but he, yeah i mean that's was, what i was
1: going to say it sucks man Jeez. <laughs> dog shit um, <laughs> dog shit Bingo, go these paintings are dog shit man. you
0: should just quit <laughs> cut off your ear bro right um but because he was such like a a long laboring and hard-working artist particularly because like he knew how far he had to go that i think like i said his style evolved out of like his extreme iterations in that like it was he was doing this over and over and over again mm-hmm. um and especially like with the means that he had, first of all, being exiled from a lot of um, normal settings where painters were hanging out and doing their work. Um, so in a subject matter, but also even like in his materials and needing to get outside and and draw or paint every single day forced him to do so many quick drawings of landscapes and things like that. Like I think a lot of his painting style really comes from his drawing, um, fundamentals, which, yeah. And then he was also quite a fan of Japanese, um, painting and drawing. Right. Like I said, I don't, I don't know if we need to dive into the formal stuff now. Um, I guess here, here's what I wanted to bring up. We can sit on this for as long or short as we want. Um, and why I was pulling on a few of these threads. One of the biographies of Van Gogh I read, which is a really common thread through all all depictions of him that I've seen. Um, and I'm sorry, I, I just can't remember the author of the biography. I just randomly grabbed it from the library like a year ago. Um, painted like Van Gogh as someone who really struggled to connect with people, uh, but really wanted to connect with people. And mm. that started very early in life. Uh and maybe I I guess like one of the typical examples is of the cousin he was trying to woo who rejected him. He was trying to do his cousin. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> but also in all the different places he went ended up becoming alienated and I should have looked this up specifically, but I think it was in Arles um I mean, first of all, like children would throw rocks at him and harass him. And people were always accusing him of being crazy and being a drunk. And people were nervous about him and scared of him. And in Arles, I think he was, by unanimous decision, kicked out of the town. Does that ring a bell?
1: Yeah, I, I believe that is the case, yes. And and that, I think, is what led to his, maybe his first institutionaliz- institutionalization, if right. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, Right. Yeah, he was. He nobody liked him. At least they, they couldn't. They couldn't bear him, uh, or at least he would find ways to, to elicit their, elicit their ire somehow. Despite his better, his better intentions. Yeah.
0: So I I think like the Arles uh, incident is really indicative of holy shit. Like people hated this guy and and feared him. Um, and maybe he was drunk all the time. I I don't know. And maybe he was a danger to himself and to other people. Um, and, but the Galgan experience too. So he, I mean, maybe Galgan one was one of the few people who appreciated Van Gogh's talent and potential. Although from what I've seen, he was kind of a descending prick, um, who, who Van Gogh suffered very well and took his criticism very seriously. But basically mm-hmm. Van Gogh was trying to set up like an artist commune in a house there where people, artists could gather um, and work together and have community. Um, which, you know, from what I've seen, and I think makes perfect sense really does indicate that he was not uh, an asshole. Um, and he wasn't like a, a, a willing outsider but for whatever reason, after attempts of trying to connect with people, like he, people just couldn't couldn't stay with him for more than a couple of weeks before they had to leave, and that's what Galgen did—is um, left and really hurt Van Gogh, and so Van Gogh got mm-hmm. really angry and maybe came after him and threatened him and cut off his ear and all that stuff. Um
1: right. and I mean, this is probably the good p- point to say that. All that is true, and then there's also the obvious, and I think it it's a hundred percent confirmed fact that he was suffering from some form of extreme psychological illness. Um, and most people actually tend to think that he was he was battling some form of epilepsy, which which uh, increased as he as he got older, and so that he was having these epilep- epileptic fits. Um, and hallucinations and nightmares um, that made him. And this again isn't necessarily a hundred percent fact because they didn't have the technology to diagnose these things. But um, there's been speculation as whether it was schizophrenia or epilepsy. But most people land on epilepsy, mm-hmm. um, and that is you know really interesting. And people can extrapolate that. So far and the point is not to say oh he was mentally ill therefore uh, you know he was this this brilliant mad genius um, who couldn't get along with anybody and we can talk more about what that plays in what what role that plays in his his legend and his myth um, but I think it's worth acknowledging that it was a thing that put a tremendous strain on his social life and um, but you know, I also want to be cautious to say that it isn't necessarily. You know, this is not the defining feature. Oh, Van Gogh, his work was a result of his madness. No, that yeah. that's that's you know, couldn't probably be farther. Well, I don't know. It's a question worth asking. But everything we just said about his his meticulous, you know, articulate uh, understanding of his own work suggests that you know his mental illness was something that existed alongside his his brilliance
0: right and even like you'll hear people say like because of whatever psychological thing he was suffering from from that manifested uh like physiologically in some sort of cataract or something like that like yeah oh that's how that's why he did those stars all swirly bullshit yeah and it's like okay <laughs> that's and if you've ever tried to draw you- or paint anything yourself like that you know that's bullshit because of how intentional his choices were like right and stunning his choices are i right. mean the canvas would look really too so yeah <laughs> um
1: yeah i mean that's that kind of is taking it to an extreme in just such a blatant misunderstanding or a, a blatant bastardization of what the conversation is even about or what what why are we even talking about this guy right is it to to kind of play out some fantasy about what the the deranged mind is capable of? Um, I don't know. I I think that's ridiculous.
0: Yeah. I yeah okay. I think we should we should come back to that um, right, and we can talk to about his death because I do think that's probably the the main thing to say. Um, and I'll just say now, it's hard for me to think of a modern artist who. I would really love to look at their work on an aesthetic level. Mm -hmm. Um, And so all the biography aside, like let's say with Jackson Pollock, like you could say he has a biography that's compelling in the same way, but I don't want to look at a Jackson Pollock because it's boring as shit. Like Mm -hmm. in an algorithm, a very simple algorithm would produce something similar. Whereas the complexity of Van Gogh is like, pleasing on an aesthetic level. And um, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. why he's so popular is because um, of how much complexity and harmony he's bringing to his pieces that make you want to look at it, which Mm -hmm. is something that is not a condition for most modern art of like, do you want to look at this or do you want to talk about um, all the esoteric background? But so we'll come back to that. But um, the one thing I wanted to bring up about, bringing in alfred barr bringing in lies that i made up about van gogh is um basically like picture a person and we all know them that maybe you went to high school with or knew in college or something like that and like i said they chew with their mouth open and you're having breakfast with them and they don't get that like breakfast is supposed to last 45 minutes and then you leave like this person could go on talking for two hours mm-hmm. and you have to forcefully end the conversation. And they insist on every time you're together repeating like word for word a Ron White stand-up routine for 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they tell oh, you man. tell you the same jokes over and over again. Maybe they... Um, maybe they... Had an elaborate lie where they told you that they were accepted to the Air Force Academy because of their smart, or their brain, but were, was kicked out because they got caught underground breakdancing. Or that they had uh, a girlfriend for the past year, but you haven't met her because she's in Florida. And actually, um, she got a cut on her toe, and they, she went to the hospital, and they said it was affected. And they had to cut her foot off. And so you're deciding, or your friend is deciding, you know, if it's worth it, you know, if he can really support a one-footed girlfriend. Um,
1: and, and the kicker, this person who does all of those things you just named has an incredible grasp of value and the weight of a line.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. So how insane would that be? That would be insane. But on okay, this is what I'm saying. I'm trying to drive home the point that we know people who we who maybe we even try to be friends with out of whatever sense of obligation and it's very, very, very hard to spend time with them. Do you know what I mean? There's just something socially off there that is not fun for you and -hmm. you don't gain anything from this relationship it's incredibly draining and you you just want to get away do you know what i'm saying
1: i definitely know what you're saying uh it's it's vague but um that might be because i'm that person to so many other people um (laughs) no i'm just kidding i absolutely know what you're talking about and so my point is like
0: everything from van gogh's um biography suggests Maybe not in that extreme of a way, but that he was that type of person that couldn't keep friends and couldn't keep people around except for the most sympathetic like his brother. Um, And I don't think I'm being too... I mean, maybe he did have some friends, um, but I don't think I'm being too extreme in the way that he was really pushed out of polite society um, and could only make connections with... Uh, really dislocated people like prostitutes who you mm-hmm. know on the first date he would be like i love you and come live with me um right. and like i Kathy. i think yeah i think the galgan uh interaction is a good illustration of like yeah
1: i mean to go it uh i don't want to draw too heavily on Etern at eternity's gate and i think it's Gogan, um but uh, you, the, you asshole, I think.
0: It's Van Gogh, okay.
1: Okay, you get that. I'll I'll I get Van, I get Gauguin, Uh Gauguin. Um, well, Gauguin. Uh, but the you know Oscar Isaac being cast as Gauguin and the the frazzled spastic Will uh, Willem Defoe as Vincent Van Gogh is the perfect foil. Um as Gauguin was just this, you know, kind of, you know, Paris Parisian sort of sly, sophisticated, suave dude who who could navigate all of the social the social conundrums of being an artist in Europe. And Van Gogh had none of those social graces. And there's so much of you know, you could say the same for being an artist now Mm -hmm. or or being what it takes to be successful, you know, in the era of Instagram is that you have to you have to be better at playing the game than being an actual artist. And that was arguably just as much the case then as it is now.
0: Yeah. Andy Warhol, um, I'm going to forget the quote, but like, there's a famous quote where people are kind of questioning his work on a formal level, and he's like, it's not really about the art. It's about the party that we're right. having right after this. Mm-hmm. It's about the scene. Um, and Van Gogh was <sighs> not, not that guy. Mm-mm. And so I guess, although like, I
1: think he would probably be pretty fun if you got him liquored up, yeah. I would imagine, I bet he was a fun, fun dude under the right circumstances.
0: Yeah, but the point I was trying to drive home is, um, from a distance of a hundred years, uh, we all think that we love Van Gogh and would be friends with him and appreciate him and you know think of him as either like poor Van Gogh, like Margaret said. Um or as like a misunder I don't know, like a misunderstood soul that we understand, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh kind of a I'd- joker, if you will. Uh-huh.
0: Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. uh-huh. yeah, he's a little mm. twisted. Um just, just a, got a dark view of the world. <laughs> but my point is like to drive home the point of even you and I, I think, uh even under the right circumstances wouldn't have potentially liked Van Gogh or wouldn't have wanted to spend time with him. And so I'm just trying to drop, put press on the irony here of him being the most beloved painter in the world. Right. And like people as diverse of me and, you know, my mother-in-law both agreeing that like, we love him so much. Right. When in fact, like if you were in your home, you would feel very uncomfortable.
1: Right and the very I think you're getting at it that the very thing you're talking about the knowledge that he was or the or the idea that he was an outsider in some way is in part what draws us to him because it kind of flatters our idea of of how we see the world right we want to believe that we too Possess some, you know, some rare kind of outsider quality that cuts through the bullshit, mm-hmm. and you know, Van Gogh is is a person who who can represent that to us. And I'm not trying to say that he shouldn't be. I think I think that's that arguably a good thing. Um, but I think the impulse you're talking about there to kind of romanticize him is comes from a good instinct. But it is is uh a corruption or is corrupted by the kind of toothlessness that you're talking about. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. I think so. And I, I'm not exactly sure where I'm going with it either, other well, than like how easy our appreciation is. Um Sure.
1: Well let I mean, like go ahead. No, you go ahead. I mean, I don't know how how much info you have about this um or if you wanted to think about this, but setting aside you know how we perceive him and whether or not he would be somebody who you could, you know, eat breakfast with or uh play ultimate frisbee with without having to worry about him saying something weird to a girl who walks by. Um the fact that he was, like you said, only he, he had been excluded to the point that the only people who he could make social connections with were prostitutes, peasants you know people who he was paying to give him psychiatric care yeah. um, you know gave him and again this is tricky because I'm not trying to say that mental illness is a necessary catalyst for artistic brilliance I'm really not trying to say that but his status as an outsider gives him a perspective that we on the inside do not have right Mm -hmm. and sheds light on realities that we need to know about we need to think about and the way that he looked at the world was in many in many ways a result of the suffering that he was going through in in that his suffering infused his art with a kind of a kind of radiance and passion um and again i'm not trying to say that suffering necessarily predicates art what i'm trying to say is that we can't discard him because he was an outsider or we can't we can't neuter a van gogh or any any kind of artist who was looking from the margins and sort of as we're tempted to do say oh this is a marginal artist how fascinating Mm -hmm. Look at this dancing, dancing monkey who can, who can talk to peasants and, and show us what it's really like on the outside. There's an, there is a vital and necessary perspective that is being expressed there that we as human beings would, would be better off heeding.
0: Right. And I think, um, so like, I think the stark contrast of the bars, not even the bars, but of Hmm. MoMA and Van Gogh is a, a good way to see it because all right, put Alfred Barr and Margaret Barr aside, although they were very high society and about town and tastemakers. So even, even though I say like, I think Alfred Barr was very genuine. um, I still doubt he would very much enjoy actually being in the presence of Vincent, much, much less his wife. I don't know why I'm saying that. Maybe that's sexist, but just based on her demeanor in the interview. Um, But let's say for sure, like uh, Abby Rockefeller or any of the less genuine actors in the museum um, would never, ever, ever countenance Vincent being at one of their cocktail parties, you know, how immediately he would embarrass everybody and create a scandal um, just by his weirdness, like not even like he's going to make a scene, but just one of those people who makes you uncomfortable, <laughs> like right. and uneasy. And so I think the first thing just to say is like the obvious thing of like, it's just sad because it's unfair. I mean, his whole life is unfair. Like there's nothing romantic about the fact that he suffered his whole life and never got any credit. And just because he's now revered doesn't, doesn't do anything for him. You know, it doesn't re- um, redeem his actual experience and that's very sad and unfair and you know I I'm hesitant to like make it a tragic beauty sort of thing like it just really the person who this sucks most of all for is Vincent um because he's dead uh but but first of all like yeah that it's just it's just on the irony is unfair that someone who never would have been allowed within 100 feet of these people is now lauded as um you know a golden child um mm-hmm. i mean i think
1: and, right 100 percent.
0: and a, a really easy thing to say is like well they shouldn't be able to own his works. Yeah, like his sure, work should right. be, belong to Pub, the, public. the dutch people or something right. like that yeah, yeah, like for
1: sure no 100 percent. i mean i i totally get what you're saying and i think i think i'm Narrowing in on it, and this is what I was kind of trying to articulate as well um, is that, I mean, maybe another way of putting it is that if we were to truly understand Van Gogh and his work, we would see it in the MoMA, we would see Starry Night in the MoMA and say, tear this down, tear this building down. Yeah, right. You know, like, the vision of Vincent van Gogh of what the world is, of the beauty of the radiance of the, of the sublimity of every single moment and every Mm -hmm. fiber of creation stands as a jarring and stark critique of all forms of wealth and power and, and establishment.
0: Because it not, not only highlights the, um, injustice of it and the irony of it but yeah just the deficit of this world of like how gray and boring 100 percent fucking useless like this that's whole world what i is. mean right right, right. so it, yes. it points us to like here's a man outside of this world and my god like how much better does it look than this shit
1: right um, for sure exactly and, and because he could see it and that's why right. we you know that's What an ostensibly what an art gallery is for is so we can put these, you know, situate these works of art on the wall that show us, you know, people who saw something that we didn't, we get to momentarily kind of touch it for a second ourselves, and then off we go, Um, rather than, you know, allowing those things to actually be transformative. In in the way we view how our our society is constructed and how we how we relate to the world, mm-hmm. right?
0: Yep, totally. Um, yeah. So I guess like I think the imperative there to to wrap that idea up a little bit is because of the circumstances of his life and the quirks of his personality he became an outsider. And his works embody the vision of like a an outsider seer right who right. like you said could could highlight the beauty and, and the um like ecstatic ecstatic uh presence of the world um outside of like normal society um, right that he serves as like a prophet to exalt that world and um you know pre- proclaim the deficit of ours Um, for sure so I I like that a lot um now did you have something else on that because I was going to say a couple things we could talk since the show is about art and power a little more explicitly on the power theme or we could we could talk about his death um I mean
1: anything. uh I have one comment. I think we're going a little long at the moment, but um I have one comment we're at, that we're at
0: 50 for this
1: right yeah. which which is I think, you know, it's it is kind of a shame. And and it's great that everybody loves Van Gogh. I I think that's a good thing. That yeah. that's a you know, generally something that gives me some pep in my step when when you can talk to somebody who likes Van Gogh who doesn't care about art or whatever. Mm-hmm. That being said, I think the fact that it is so rare to reach the point of of the conversation or of the encounter that we're just describing it's so rare for that to actually happen for people who are looking at Van Gogh or at any art that it's that it's a little bit depressing mm-hmm. um Like, for example, there was an, you know, not to knock our competition, but there's another art history podcast that I tried to listen to for a while. And they had, they they talked to, or they talked about Vincent. They did a Vincent episode and spent, I would say, a good 25 minutes talking about how cool the uh, gift shop at the Van Gogh Museum was and how they got, they got a Van Gogh shirt and they got a Van Gogh tote and they got a Van Gogh this and that. And, you know. This isn't to knock any of those things as frivolous or not maybe a little bit fun. It's it's to go back to the point that we're just saying, which is that if you're really looking at Van Gogh's art, he should make he should make your desire for a t-shirt with it with his painting on it completely useless. He should obliterate it.
0: Yeah, he should make you, you want to quit your job and go walk outside, <laughs> like, Exactly. right, and 100%. appreciate the like the the snarly, twisting roots of a
1: tree, like, right, and maybe maybe a shirt with his painting on it is the closest thing we can get when we walk out of a museum and think, okay, now what do I do? Or and we have no and we have no way of doing it.
0: Or a poster where it's Starry Night, but the stars are like swirly, uh, golden cats. Hell yeah. 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 So definitely. Um, I mean, all other art podcasts do suck. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, the only other thing I was going to say just on, on theme here about power is we've revolved, I think kind of around two poles or oscillated between two poles of reacting against the idea that, Hey, art is not political. If you have a political idea, ideology and you're being didactic about that, like that's just, that's kish, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's tacky and art is supposed to exist apart from ideology, apart from politics and blah, blah, blah. And I know we're definitely resistant to that idea because it's it's stupid and impossible in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think we've also been appreciating the idea that basically, art is not powerful <laughs> like in the in the political sense of it. if you're using it as a means to an end it's not very effective um, mm-hmm. because what you're doing is kind of on a different and again i don't want to sound imagey here but um it, it, it's sort of on a different register it's it's dealing with a different economy of power i um,
1: mean Yes, I I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's imagey necessarily. I I think, you know, we can't, I don't want to get into all that, all their kind of philosophy. Um, But just because something is personal doesn't mean it can't be political, right? Well, the
0: personal is political. Right. Let me stop you right there and say the personal is political.
1: Thank you. Thank you, uh, woke Ben. yeah, no. I mean, it just because something has a power that is, you know, potentially transformative emotionally, doesn't mean that there isn't some some political power that that can come after that. Right, and right? I... it's it's like, I mean, just speaking of my own life as evidence. Even though, even though, I did spend years of my life being kind of mystified by art and using it as a way of kind of aspiring towards a certain, like, kind of bougie, disen, you know, like disembodied vision of what my life could be. Um, I saw Van Gogh's in Amsterdam when I was 22, and, you know, it changed my life. Like, there's no other way to put it. Um, you know, I saw the, the Van Gogh Museum. You, you walk from the ground floor up to the top, going from—it's four stories high, with about 100 paintings on each on each floor— walking from his earliest paintings all the way up to the crows in the field. And you look at that as his last painting. Um, and you go in sequence all the way through. And it was and one of the And then you jump out most, the window. And then you jump out the window and they've got it open there for you. Um, it's 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 good that they do that. Um, no, it was incredible. And I mean, it's like... And my life has never been the same. And I like to think that it has changed the way I moved to the world in some way, or at least it... it, it change something about a choice that I made that has led to other choices
0: yeah well that's that's awesome wish I could have done that yep but you did get me a really fantastic uh, book right with, with very very good reproductions of of all this paintings in color but the thing um, thing I was going to float that I think will be a recurring theme that I pose to myself sometimes is like that art is what you do when you've given up on, on power <laughs> mm. or perhaps like when the, the question of power is resolved. So either, um, I guess I just see this in my own life of like, uh, being somewhat, uh, distracted or I, I'm constantly, I find it hard to stay focused. So I might be very politically engaged and concerned with things that are going to affect real material power relations. Right. Like, not that I know how to do that, but, like, that I'm looking for ways to, to impact the world and, like, you know, get my hands on the levers, right, um, mm-hmm. in the realm of power. And times then when I'll immediately, after f- four weeks of work, get completely burnt out and filled with just existential dread and, and a feeling of nihilism that this is all... Pointless, like um, that. I'm being played to think that that like I could affect this change, or like that I'm just um, being titillated with like, hey, you can you can have some power, you can affect things, and, and just feeling the vanity of that, I guess. But basically, mm-hmm. like that. After that reaction, I will then dive into art. Um, so it's mm-hmm. like when I when I've given up on power art is what I want to do Um, Mm -hmm. because, and I I don't know if that's right, but it's, it's just half of the dialectic that I'm dealing with. And I can, I would say in the life of Van Gogh, like over the course of his life, certainly I think you could chart this, like just dive into absolute powerlessness and obscurity where he becomes less and less relevant to the world in his life and possibly um loses more and more hope of being being somebody even as an artist or being discovered um and yet like the inverse corollary of that as as that happens then his he becomes so much better an artist you know mm-hmm. that he dives deeper and deeper into art as something for its own sake um that whether whether his stuff i mean he wanted to be discovered there's no doubt about that but like mm-hmm whether he makes it or not makes it or not like that he's doing it um so yeah i kind of drifted off there but
1: no that's that's good stuff
0: point being like that i don't think his work and like his best works from from the most important periods of his life um could be possible for someone who's clinging to power clinging Mm -hmm. to success clinging to be somebody um even as like say a, a preacher like he wanted to be you know some sort of influencer and change maker you know like mm-hmm. that he found himself crashing into a life of isolation um and in those times like is when he actually s- produced you know his most powerful stuff right uh, I- i'm wavering around the point but
1: i think you see what no you mean. that's i do see what you mean It's absolutely true. Mm -hmm.
0: So, to put a bow on it, um, you wouldn't like Van Gogh if you met him. Just kidding. You might, but... You might. uh, Maybe
1: he was really tender and charming and everybody else was the mean one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Uh, But next time you're thinking about how uh, you understand him and you would have been nice to him, maybe think twice about that. Uh, Maybe you would have... uh, Picked up your kid and walked to the other side of the street because of the scary guy with one ear. Um, mm-hmm. And what that says about our world and his.
1: Right. And maybe, just maybe, mm-hmm. if you think about that for long enough, you might learn something.
0: You might. Um, uh, hold on one sec. Did I mention that that he was he uh, fought dogs? I think I
1: did say that. Yeah, I did, mean You said he killed puppies. Yeah.
0: Did I mention that uh, he had a he would drive a wagon that on the back said more rows for more hose.
1: Crazy. It's kind of he also he also wore white sunglasses on the back of his head if you can believe that that <sighs> they even made those.
0: Yeah, he wore white jeans and people would. Ki- Kick mud at him just to get the jeans muddy. He, he had these little
1: flip flops that when you turn them over, they actually have a bottle opener under the flip flop.
0: <laughs> uh, yep. He could often be found in the, in the club.
1: He also loved going to the gym, if you can believe that or not. He loved exercise. And, God, um, uh, the thing is, can... yeah, gone. But more than anything, he loved telling people about his workouts. I know. Um, and, and his diet, too.
0: I can't have a conversation with Van Gogh without him fucking mentioning CrossFit.
1: It's horrible. And he's, he's in good shape. It shows. But honestly.
0: And yeah, and we get it. You're a vegan and you threw out your
1: TV. Uh, cool. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, anything else to say?
1: I think there's more to come on Van Gogh. At least there should be. I, yeah. I would say if you haven't seen it, go out and watch At Eternity's Gate. We could probably do a whole episode oh, just on Van Gogh's.
0: Shoot. Yeah, we didn't up? talk about his death.
1: No, that's okay. We could we could do an ep on his. Well, we could fold it in. Talk about his death. Talk about his Christian Christianity or what some people would call a kind of panentheism. Um And then we could maybe get into the kind of aesthetic things if we're willing to venture down that road.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, that sounds good. Mm -hmm. That's where we'll go next. Uh, Anything else to say to the campers before they uh, tuck into their beds and make fart noises for an hour straight before falling asleep?
1: And then we wake them up two hours later, bring them down to the dock... And ask them, if this dock were to blow up right now, where do you think you'd be going? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then we all skinny dip.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, this has been Magic Camp, a podcast about art and power. And for anybody with a little bit of extra time after school, I'm Paul Anderson.
0: I'm Banderson.
1: See you next week, campers.
0: Bye-bye. What do you think is more important? Don't think about it. Sensitivity to aesthetics or compassion? I hate that. It's your question.
1: Yeah, I think they're the same thing. The same thing, same sides of a different coin.